Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Tomorrow's MSP podcast, the voice of the medical services profession, where medical services professionals and industry experts contribute their voices about popular topics, including the impacts of artificial intelligence, MSP core competencies, department advocacy, leadership, and more. I'm your host, Lauren Leacoris, content editor for NAMS. On this episode, we'll be speaking with Natalie Arjun-Jones, Juanita Howell, James Freeberg, Pearl Williams, and Amy Murphy from the NAMS DEI Task Force about DEI initiatives in the workplace, how to keep the inclusivity conversation going, and how MSPs can do their part in contributing to the efficacy of DEI efforts within their respective healthcare systems. My name is Amy Murphy. I work at a FQHC called um, HealthWest, located in Idaho. My name is Pearl Williams and currently serving the chair for our NAMS DEI Task Force. And I'm happy to be part of this, our first MSC podcast for DEI. Hi, my name is Natalie Arjun Jones. I'm a senior provider enrollment specialist. I live in uh, Massachusetts and I've been in provider enrollment for about 20 years. Hi, everyone. My name is Juanita Howell. I'm the supervisor of the medical staff office here at Harbor Regional Health, formerly Grace Harbor Community Hospital in Aberdeen, Washington. I have been in medical staff services for 32 years. Hi there, um, I'm James Freeberg. I'm the Director of Credentialing and Privileging here in San Francisco at the University of California, San Francisco, UCSF. And I uh, have been in credentialing, I think I'm going on 13 years now. Fantastic. And welcome to everybody. And thank you all so much for being on this episode of the Tomorrow's MSP podcast. First question I have for all of you is, What have you all observed as far as successes or resistance relative to DEI initiatives in your own careers? So there's a definite need for us to review our organizations as a whole and look at the DEI practices or the lack thereof. I will say uh, my organization as a whole, the hospital side and the physician's organization have both created a DEI task force. And we're going to be taking a look at the issues on both sides. We hired a DNI director who's going to oversee our department. And I think he's going to be starting next month. But right now, our CEO is in charge who sort of oversees this. Um, and she's very involved, very open to our ideas and, you know, have sort of guided us in our search for to see where there are areas that um, might need improvement. My organization has a, a diversity committee or group. Um, I was a member of that group many years ago um, and then they broke up and reformed. Um, at that particular time, I didn't feel as if that the spectrum of diversity was welcomed or understood um, simply because of the of the of the projects that they were actually looking at it was more about um, the hearing impaired and the language impaired um, but it, that's as narrow as the the committee at that time um, 
was looking at. And then again, too, those years going back, the DEI initiative, the EI initiative didn't really come into full play. Now there is a new committee and it still is just a diversity committee. And, um, and I'm not a part of that and I have chose not to be a part of that. Um, I did speak with the director or the committee chairperson of that committee just to understand the scope of the membership and to find out whether or not the membership was a fully inclusive membership, and it is not. Um, and I find that kind of disturbing a little bit um, because they really have not vetted the EI part of DEI. It's just the D, it's not the E and the I. So as far as I'm concerned, I don't think that it is um, addressing any issues whatsoever, especially when there is not diversity amongst its members. Um, and that makes it difficult. Um, one of the other things too, is that the area in which we are in is it, the diversity is not that wide. So you won't find um, indigenous groups of people here and here and here and here. It's just not, it's just not that way. Um, so that could be one of the issues right there that they need to figure out how to embrace. Um, I'm, I'm not sure the organization as a whole is comfortable with addressing it. Um, I think they're making strides, but it's a very, very slow path um, in which they're going down. So um, to answer the question, yes, to some degree and no, but it's leaning more towards the no. Um, in terms of what I've observed, um, I don't think that I've observed any active resistance um, with um, my past, where I was, the past University of New Mexico, where I was or the University of San Francisco. I think that I don't think that um, institutions you'll find a lot of active active resistance towards diversity initiatives. I do think that resistance that can be found is is simply just deeply rooted in institutional practice practices um, that really drive organizational procedures and how organizations approach diversity. Um, but in terms of successes that I've seen and observed in my career. Um, I, I, I love the fact that here at the University of uh, San Francisco, or the University of California here in San Francisco, we have the Office of Diversity and Outreach. And I think that what we've seen is more and more opportunity for this office to be in the limelight. And uh, similar to like what Juanita was saying, is that institutions are really broadening their approach um, to uh, diversity and what is actually included. Um, so for example, credentials committee, their memberships should be a diverse, um, array of different providers and their specialties. But I think now, you know, institutions are really looking at, okay, what is the, uh, balance of the different types of reported ethnicities on credentials committee, the different balance of, um, genders as well on the credentials committee. So, um, I think that there's a lot more successes that we've been seeing a lot lately too, and that have been really championing the DEI initiatives. 
And the next question I have for all of you is, what are some ways that companies can improve the efficacy rate of their DEI initiatives? So we found that working with our colleagues um, in different facets of the organization and with HR um, is kind of getting the ball rolling in that direction. Um, And we also have learned that you need to have the right people in the room when you're having these discussions or it will not get any steam and go anywhere. I agree with you, Natalie. If you don't have, you know, years ago, the term used to be, you got to have the right people on the right bus. (laughs) And I don't hear that so much anymore. That's just, I'm dating myself. Sorry about that guys. But it, it resonates to today. If, if, if you don't have the right people in the room having these types of sensitive emotional conversations, because it is emotional um, and it, all, it brings out of people things that's been embedded in them, maybe from their childhood that they didn't even know was there or they suppressed it so that once you start this conversation, it's like a, it's like a flower budding and it, and it just opens up a lot. But I think that if organizations have the right people at the table at the right time, the conversations can be focused and be more supportive of, of the DEI initiative. And don't be afraid of it. It's, you know, it's always been there. It's not something that hasn't been. It's just that things that have happened outside in our world has brought it more of a focus. And so I think that organizations, no matter how what their composition of FTEs are or what their composition of medical staff providers are. They still need to look at it's there. And if you don't think it's there, then you're being ignorant to what's happening around you. And that's the culture that you have to look at because it brings about retention of what you currently have. And it also opens up the doors for hires to come in. So if individuals on the outside are looking at your organizations and saying, wow, I don't see anyone that looks like me, or there's just a splattering of here and there, they may be very reluctant to even apply for that position because for fear that no one looks like them or, or represents who they may be. So I think that for organizations, they have to be open and they have to be honest about the culture and address it. And I can agree with that too. I think uh, right in line with that, um, organizations need leadership to prioritize uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. And, and included in that prioritization, um, you know, if that's going to be the, the in, institution's priority, then they need to make sure that their, prior, their priorities are remaining accountable as well on an ongoing basis, that it's not just for some fleeting moment in time, um, yeah. but it, it, it continues. And I think that at large organizations prioritizing their people and investing in their own people um, will really overall in the long run help support DEI initiatives because that make certain that people can build um, mutual respect and trust as teams and they work together 
um, well and professionally. And when you create that type of scenario where you know, teams are already working well together and um, just really being efficient and professional and really driving their whatever goals that they're um, assigned, that's the type of scenario where then people can, uh, as my boss often says, people can become getting comfortable being uncomfortable, having these uncomfortable conversations. Um, so making sure that the organizational support is in place, that people can have these types of conversations um, about diversity within the organization and people don't feel as though there will be any type of um, uh, lashback or uh, that people can feel safe having these types of conversations. Um, so I think really prioritizing and investing in, in the people of an organization and making them feel as though they can have these conversations, um, that leadership is prioritizing these types of things um, on an ongoing basis is really key to improving the uh, efficacy rate of DEI initiatives. What are some specific challenges companies face when implementing DEI initiatives? So there are many challenges, um, some that are within our control, some of it's outside of our control. Again, to piggyback off of the last question, you need to have people talking to each other and the right people talking to each other. Um, Sometimes there may be uh, state regulations that prevent you from uh, implementing certain changes um, within your organization. Um, Executives or management may be resistant to change or don't even recognize that change needs to be made within the organization. Um, There may also be hesitation from employees um, thinking, you know, will forming this DEI committee or task force really make any changes? Are we really going to be heard? Um, To be honest, when I was approached to be on my organization's DEI, I hesitated because I know you know, they had the diversity and uh, talks and committees and different things. And back to what Juanita originally said, you know, about, yeah, they were looking at certain groups, not everybody as a whole. Um, So I was a little skeptical, but now that I'm in it, um, I'm realizing they really want to make change going forward. Well, I'd like to reiterate a little bit what Natalie was saying. I, I, I do believe that it is a cultural situation. And I think it also has to do with leadership. If leadership is not willing to focus on DEI or even understand it, um, and I think that's a bigger piece is understanding it. If you are in a situation or in an area where it's not that widely diverse, um, it makes it very difficult, I feel, for you to fully embrace the DEI initiative. You hit on some things, but you don't hit on everything. And, And therefore, then you wind up becoming selective as to what you use as a project, so to speak. Um, But I truly believe that it has to start at the top for it to trickle down to everyone. 
Um, you know, anything and everything that we do always says it has to start at the top. And for me, I think that once it starts with leadership, I think the culture within the organization can change somewhat, somewhat. Again, going back to what I said earlier, a lot, I think, happens because of how we were raised the things that we were surrounded as children and those conversations that you've heard as children, they become deep embedded in you until all of a sudden something comes along and wakes you up and go, oh, I remember something, you know? Um, and for me, I grew up in a diverse neighborhood and a diverse family. So hitting on this now at this stage in my career and at this age, sometimes it's a little, I'd have to step back a little bit and go, wow, you know, because I've come from one end of the country to the other end of the country, whereas on the East Coast, it's, it is a big thing, but it's not that it's a big issue there, but they seem to have gotten it a little bit better. But here out on the West Coast, it's still a little bit laid back a little bit. So I think it has to be leadership initiative. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a priority, but it has to be identified somewhere, maybe in your in their um, mission and vision statement, or maybe a submission and vision statements to incorporate it. But I think if it's there, then those that are on the outside that are looking into the organization or viewing the organization as an opportunity to come work, whether it's an employee or a provider, if they see that in your statement or somewhere on your website, they will be more inclined to go, hey, this is some place where I want to come and work and thrive. I, I would agree with that. And I, I don't know that there's much more that I can add in terms of uh, identifying other specific challenges that are faced when implementing DEI. The only the only thing that I can think of to to add is possibly companies not knowing how to do it or not having a playbook on how to do it. Um, but otherwise, yes, the leadership, the prioritization, um, and and being concerned about the culture of the company um, being really key um, and could possibly hurdles in implementing. But um, there are many resources out there on on how to approach um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So um, I think that, you know, I, if, if companies prioritize it and uh, just have a good faith effort, um, they can find resources and they can um, make it a priority if they wish to. And, you know, I think that um, the members may have already touched on these, and, and I, I think I just heard it, uh, James mentioned as well. I think is the the lack of knowledge and how to actually initiate it. Um, and then I I also think the leadership team would need to also be trained on how to initiate and implement within their organization. And as I was listening to Juanita, yes, I agree that. Um, Having that in a mission statement or value, and as well as part of our everyday morning huddles, um, it has to be a daily conversation. And members have to be able to feel comfortable speaking up. Um, and if they don't feel that way, um, I, I don't know that it would be effective. 
Like what you hear on the Tomorrow's MSP podcast? Visit namsgateway.org to catch up on more content and insights from medical services professionals and industry experts. So the next question I have for everybody is, why are conversations about equity and inclusion so deeply emotional? So I can speak for me, like it's emotional for me because it's, you grew up with these biases um, and you don't even realize you have them. Um, And then, so now that we started thinking about this, talking about this, you kind of step back and you look at, you know, what's being done in your organization in terms of like hiring and uh, promotions, different things. Um, And you realize, oh, so these are the biases that hindered uh, forward progress. Um, And I remember like I broke down, like talking about this because we did, um, uh, we looked at a, um, clip for a a bias um, for our organization, our DEI committee. I think that because people sometimes are not willing to go beyond the bluff, so to speak, and they want to stay in their own little bubble because, you know, each ethnic group has their own um, uh, prejudice within it, you know, Some, and I'll say for African-Americans, it depends upon the color of your skin. Um, And Pearl, you may may agree or disagree with me, but it depends on that. Certain sections of the country where there's vast majority of African-Americans, depending upon their complexion, they are biased against. And a lot of this goes back to slavery you know, how the lighter skinned slaves were treated as opposed to dark against dark, darker skinned slaves. It, it's all embedded in us simply because of our culture. Now, the important thing as far as I'm concerned is that once you understand that, and once you are educated enough to know that you can step out of that, branch out of that, or bud out of that, or you travel around and you go to other areas and you pick up on different things. But I think it's an eight in each and every individual that they make sure that they surround themselves with not necessarily always like thinking individuals, but I mean like L-I-K-E individuals, but people that have a broad sense of what it's like. And I thank God for my parents, God rest their soul, that they made it a point to push my brother and I out there to say, hey, go explore. Don't make this your your world because there's so much out there. And the interesting thing about it is that you learn a lot of different things about other people and other ethnic groups and other cultures. And if you really dig a little bit deeper, we all are interconnected with one another. There's something that's in our DNA that makes us interconnected with one another. And if we're not astute to understand that, then we're missing out on a vast majority of life. Thank goodness. Like my mom, before she passed away, like she made her peace and she 
fell in love with my husband as well. And I guess she saw, you know, like what he is. And now like my husband and my dad, like they hang out like best friends. Uh, they sit and they talk. So it's, I think they're sort of scared because it's different than what we knew and what we grew up with for so many years. Um, And so I'm glad that I was able to step outside and, and sort of open their eyes to see that, yeah, we may look different, but we're still the same, you know? That's it. That's it. That's it. I agree with you both. Um, You know, our social and cultural exposure can define how you integrate with each human being, is how I see that. Um, And to Natalie's point, um, you know, I, I have sat back and thought about it so hard. Our parents, they would bring you up in what they know at that time, in their lifetime. So trying to open their lenses to see things differently is a challenge to them. And my, my mom, we have these conversations. So she's 81 years old, and there's certain things that she would say, and I, I would say, no, I would not agree with you. I do not see things this way. Um, and like, like Juanita, you said about the color, the different shades of black. Um, yeah, they see that differently. You know, it's like they gravitate to one with a, a lighter shade of black, um, more than someone that is darker. And so I, me, because, um, of my exposure, um, I see things differently. I see people for who they are. Um, at least that's my goal, is to see people for who they are, not so much on the complexion of their of their skin. And so I think as, as we move forward, if parents are able to expose their children at an earlier age in, to different cultures, different religion, um, it helps. Now, I know there's challenges there. There's social, economic challenge where they're not able to do that. You know, people grew up in, 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 in a home where they cannot travel. And so they become an adult. And at, at that time, they're able to travel. And it's like, it's a shock when they're placed in multiple ethnicity groups and exposed to different um, groups uh, across the the world, so to speak, or seen on TV, you know, it's like the first time I've seen a person so dark. Oh, it's the first time I've seen a white person. You know what I mean? So it's multifactorial, and um, we just have to be able to peel away the orange, so to speak, so people can understand from a more deeper level. At the end of the day, we're all human beings. <laughs> um, but yes, it can become very emotional just talking about that. And especially when you start talking about it in different generational groups. True. Because whatever their experience was, they just want to hold on to that. Yes. You don't want to change it. Yeah. And so um, 
it's not going to happen tomorrow. We just have to be prepared. It will not happen tomorrow. Um, the same amount of time it took for them to be there. But, you know, there's hope. I think there is hope. And um, with all of this, I mean, all the DEI and all the diversity and inclusion across the, the world, you know, this is more than the United States of America. This is international. People are seeing things differently because people are speaking out and social media is broadcasting it. And so I have hope that at some point there'll be more, um, a freedom um, without emotion to speak about this. I have seen more webinars popping up now that are coming across my screen, you know, about diversity, about DEI than I have in all the years that I have been working. And it is such a, it's an, it's, it's an emotion, you know, it, 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 it gets you, it gets you worked up, not sad, but happy to say, wow, it's taking this long for people to wake up to this. And um, it's exciting. It's a little scary too, because as I transitioned towards the end of my career, I really wish that it was, you know, so much a part as I was coming along and, and, and you didn't have to have some of the struggles that you had, you know, but I agree with you, Pearl, there is hope. You know, we can keep hope alive and it, it, I, I truly believe that we will get there and it may not happen in, in my time, my career, but I hope as I continue on into my senior years, you know, that my nieces, my niece and my great nieces, you know, they will see the struggles that we have had and that things will be so much easier for them and it will be transformal within whatever organization that they become a part of and they don't have to work we would not have to have an actual committee or have a, a task force or whatever it's just there and we don't have to worry about it at least we can all consider ourselves privileged to see the wheel turning yes because yes. we're still here to see that wheel turn and That's can true. contribute to it um as it as it turns that's true. I, I think that what I was going to add was I, I see these conversations as so deeply emotional because they just they can put into question one's character and integrity it can, and they can kind of rip at the cloth of who we are. Uh, for example, one one might feel like uh, they're they're a good person and they're not actively making decisions to exclude people. But when you when you take a moment and step back and really do some introspection, and, and while simultaneously listening to other people's truths and hearing what other people have experienced and gone through, you can, you can understand how, you know, there are these deeply seated, deeply rooted um, practices that, you know, govern how we go about our everyday life that really like work to actively exclude people. And so, I mean, I think really listening to people's truths and not discounting how other people's lived experiences have been um, can really empower this movement and, and, and continue to keep hope alive. I, I really like to hear that that's what you're both are saying, because I, I honestly I, and genuinely believe 
that generation by generation, there's continual improvements that just compound upon one another. I look at, um, you know, my nieces and nephews and, and compare where they're at compared to, you know, where my parents' generation was at as well and just see just stark differences about different approaches. And so um, that's been the same type of uh, thought process behind how I see hope and how I keep hope alive by looking at how just things get better and better as time goes on through various generations. I, um, I agree with James with that. I think for me and the people that I'm closest to when these type of conversations come up, what makes them so emotional is it really, at least for me, speaking for myself, it made me think um, what part in the past had I contributed to hinder someone else's opportunities or, um, you know, what did I um, benefit from? What type of privilege did I have that that uh, that continued the cycle, you know? And I think as I got older and these conversations became more um, more common, it it was hard for me to look back and be like, yeah, I I was not part of the solution and I can do better. And now that I know better and I, I keep learning and listening, um, that's easier. But I see that in, in a lot of people that I'm close with, you know, you are kind of scared from or fearful of what you don't understand. And if you're not in a very diverse group, these conversations don't come up often. And so when they do, um, like James says, it really forces you to look at um, at yourself and your own biases, even though you think that you might not have any, there's probably some in there and it's uncomfortable to have to, to face those. Um, so that's what I've seen. And, but I agree with, I agree with everyone. Um, I think there is definitely hope. And I know with each generation, um, things, things are, are changing and, and moving forward in a positive direction. I know that there's conversations that my daughter has that's in middle school comes home and they're not, they're not conversations that I haven't had until adult and her and her friends are, you know, discussing these conversations based on, on race and sexuality. And it just gives me a lot of hope that, you know, the younger generations are, they're getting it. And I think they're going to do really great things. And how can MSPs within their respective healthcare teams promote equity and inclusivity? I'm not in the MSP, but I would just say in general, like you have to be a part of the conversation, like you have to be involved. Um, Talk with your department leaders, um, again, HR, um, have conversations. I agree. You have to be vocal to a point, but you have to engage in the conversations with HR personnel. If you know that it's not going to be uncomfortable for them, um, um, and I say that with all due respect, um, I, I think that for some organizations, as we've spoken this morning, it's going to be an uncomfortable conversation at that level. Um, I think for me, since it is um, somewhat 
a part of this organization. It just needs to be a broader. Um, I think it's a conversation maybe that possibly be, maybe needs to be started at, at our management council. Um, and that's something that I will take from this podcast and take it back to my director and say, you know, maybe it's something to bring up at management council just to get a feel to see how it is. You, I think because it's not the main focus, um, and, and we MSPs are, are a small group here, you know, we're just a department of two um, with diversity within the, in the department. So I think we have to be able to measure the amount of emotion that, 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 we, that we start and, and not kick it off to a point where it becomes an explosion, but to a point where, you know, okay, You've, you have it to some degree. Now let's broaden that just a little bit and take it a little bit inch by inch to see how far we can go with it because it might shut down completely. Um, there again, because of culture and where you're actually located at. So um, I'm excited to, to move forward. Um, um, as an MSP, that's been in the field for many years, but also... Um, at a point where um, I'm looking at retirement to say, okay, how can I um, put a point at the end, a period at the end of the, of, the, of the sentence to say, I'm leaving, but yeah, you guys are on the next level where you should be. So that I'm passing that tomorrow. torch. That won't happen tomorrow, but you know. <laughs> That's right. And, and so I'll just touch on something that both Pearl and Juanita spoke to, um, or I'm sorry, oh, Natalie and Juanita. So Natalie had mentioned, you know, even just whether you're an MSP or not, I think that by making it part of your annual goals as, as a team, as a department, however large or small you are, um, making it part of your priority and then reporting that up to your leadership, that puts your leadership on notice that if it's a priority to you, then they need to take notice of that. And um, dualistically, it also keeps you accountable to those annual goals since you've already informed your leadership that you're prioritizing them. Um, but um, also specifically to MSPs. I mean, many MSPs have direct lines to leadership. Uh, and for example, uh, within our hospital, in order to get temporary privilege approved, um, we need uh, direct approval from the C-suite. So, we have relationships with, provide, with um, executives in the C-suite. Um, we also ha have relationships for supporting all of our medical staff committees and the, the chairs of these different committees. And so we have the ear of these of leaders in various uh, positions of uh, medical staff leadership. So I think leveraging the relationships that you have is, is uh, crucial in order to um, continue to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion within healthcare. Oh, I, I, I agree. I've, I can tell you that having had some of these conversations with some of our chairs of our committees, they get it. They get it. Um, so it, 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 it needs to now uh, branch off down the C-suite hall to say, okay, now you guys are on notice now you know, do something about this, you know, because it's out there. You cannot miss it. You cannot overlook it. It is there. So 
it would behoove us in, to step on board and get with it. Yeah, it's definitely not something that they can ignore any longer. That's true. Um, and I think the longer that companies or departments choose to, um, it's definitely going to be a disservice to them and, and the employees and the people that they that they staff and service. Um, it's not everybody's going to be on board at first, and it's probably maybe going to have to be something that is brought up more than once, you know, like it's going to be uncomfortable, but um, you know, if you're at your, your monthly meeting, it's, it's not received well, or, you know, it's not something they really want to do at the next meeting, you know, still bring it up, still talk about it. Um, cause the more that we bring it up and the more we talk about it, it's going to break down those barriers, barriers, um, to the people who are, are being resistant to it. True, true. And I would just add, um, that, you know, it involves everyone, not only within your specific department um, and leadership. Is we, we, we are very privileged to work in healthcare settings. And so the people we serve are diverse that come to our emergency room or come to any outpatient facilities we may be involved in. And so having a spotlight on the diversity and inclusion even to our external customers, but what will attract them to your facility? Knowing that there's inclusion across the board, organized medical staff needs to also help promote that. They see these patients, they see everyone, the spectrum of colors, they see, they provide our patient care to them. So why not? They need to be talking about this as well, not only in our leadership or within our respective department, in our newsletters. We need to spotlight storytelling, someone recognize cultural celebration, have a calendar whereby every month there's something recognized, not only the holidays that are recognized within employment, but also cultural holidays, things that different ethnicities celebrate. Put it out there so people are aware of, hey, this is what we're doing. We're extending our arms to everyone that comes within, I wanted to say six feet, but everyone that comes within our path to let them feel empathy, let them feel loved at what we're doing. So we have different facets of helping to promote the equity and inclusivity in healthcare. What, what a privilege I think it is to be in this industry where we're touching our spectrum of colors. That's my input on that. MSPs are the gatekeepers of patient safety, ensuring quality care through the credentialing and privileging of healthcare providers in an ever-changing industry. Expand your knowledge base and core competencies by visiting nams.org forward slash education. And the last question I have for all of you is, in what ways does inclusivity improve overall morale and work performance? So we all bring something different to the table. Um, and I feel like we'll be better for it if we all work together because um, we each have our own individual strengths, weaknesses. Um, you know, when we work together towards a common goal and we succeed, I think that in itself is a win for everybody. 
Um, and that would certainly um, boost morale and work performance for everyone. I think it, 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 it improves retention um, in an organization and also encourages um, hire, new hires to come on board. And whether that would be um, employees or providers or whatever it may be, but I think that you have to start within and you have to wake up what's inside. And if, when you fix what's inside, then you can open yourself up to others on the outside. But if you don't look good on the inside, it makes it very difficult for people to want to come in or be a part of you. Um, so you definitely have to be um, uh, open and more approachable and, 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 and make it so that people see, be visible about it. I like what Pearl said, you know, put those cultural celebrations out there. You know, it may not touch on every, every um, ethnic group that's out there because you have to understand in, in many sections of this country, there are only white people, uh, Caucasians. You know, you don't have a vast majority of different ethnicities. So you have to understand where some of the sensitivity comes at. But I think that it's important for you to understand what you do have in your organization and work with that, mm -hmm. no matter how small the numbers might be. Um, and again, if you're opened up to that kind of cultural um, recognition, I think that it works well so that the community can see what you look like on the inside and your community is much more willing to embrace you. You know, I think um, improving overall morale and work performance, um, you know, it, it, it supports empathy, safety. Um, I, think, I think of this like food. Um, we have a variety of food and I'm always, I always want to try something new. So if you have people of, of different ethnicity, background, there's so much to learn, you know what I mean? You make a new friend, um, someone that doesn't look like you, you learn their culture, you learn to cook their food. I mean, I love cooking, so hear me out. I learn to cook their food. Um, you send me the recipe, I give you my recipe. You know, you, you build that friendship, you build that relationship. You look forward to going to work because, you know, there's some people that are just comedian per se, and you look forward to hearing what story they're bringing. Um, you know, my, my team here will come in and tell me of a story that occur in Germany or occur somewhere else. And I'm like, wow. And this is what we celebrate as well. And, you know, that camaraderie uh, is real if we are open to exploring and appreciating each other. So, um, and if our leadership as well, and everyone that works within the within our um, environment uh, would be open to this, I think it's it's like it's like a flower, you know, the petals come and then you have that rose. Mm -hmm. So why not, you know? And and I think it also will 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 decrease uh, turnover. 
Because sometimes you can't work with someone and if you build it, I mean, companies don't have to worry about turnover. You know, turnover is that metric that affects everything. So there's so much to gain than lose. And and I completely agree. I think this is the reason that we're all on the SAMS DEI task force. I think I, what some of these answers that I've heard are some of the exact answers that I was going to respond with and primarily food. Um, you know, since I've moved here, I have to say my team and my office, they love going out for hot pot and dim sum. I've never had Burmese tea salad, tea leaf salad before coming here. And, and these are some of the best ways to um, really get to know people. Um, and of course, um, you know, uh, meeting around food really just breaks down barriers and allows people to get to know each other on a human level. And um, I, I think that just companies can't afford not to um, approach DEI um, anymore because, you know, it does improve overall morale and work performance. It's clear. I mean, people perform and they're happier as a result. Um, you have lower attrition, less people quitting or leaving your department. Um, that's less of a cost on the organization. So you, you otherwise, companies aren't going to be able to attract the same amount of talent anymore. Um, so um, what I've heard from, from both Natalie, uh, Juanita, and Pearl are all answers I was going to include, but food was going to be the primary one that I brought up as well. Okay. <laughs> bring it on. Bring it on. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, I feel like everybody hit on everything that that I that I was thinking, you know, being on a team where you feel like you're acknowledged and you're heard, and you see that there's effort from the others around you, um, striving to do better and be better and build the team up and making sure everyone um, feels like they have a spot at the table, um, not only is going to, you know, lift morale, it's going to to want you to, uh, or want the staff to stay, you know, because I think it's a really good feeling to feel like you work for a company that you're proud of, that you know that they're, they're striving to do better, especially in, in today's climate and, and everything that's coming to light. I mean, it's always been there, but now with social media and, and the internet, it's really front and center. So I agree. They can't afford not to do it. And the morale and the positivity that it brings to the group and the team is, is really uh, wonderful. Well, I appreciate you all so much coming on to this episode of the podcast and sharing all of your valuable insight. And I can't wait to share it with our audience. I know that it's going to be one of our more important episodes. Um, and I think this is a topic that, um, you know, desperately needed to be addressed. And I'm glad we could use the Tomorrow's MSP podcast platform to address it. Um, and thank you all so much for, for being guests on this episode. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you for having thank us. You for having yes, thank you. I'd like to extend a special thank you to Natalie Arjun Jones, Juanita Howell, James Freeberg, Pearl Williams, and Amy Murphy for being part of this important episode. Thank you for listening to the Tomorrow's MSP podcast the voice of the medical services profession. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to tune in to the next episode to stay up to date on the latest news and insights. Read more in-depth articles on trending topics by visiting us at namsgateway.org. Until next time.